0: All right. As you saw there in the text and as we'll talk about tonight, the big idea, leaders in the church are to be or are to lead by example. And you notice in the first verse of chapter five, it starts with what important word? Not in my Bible. <laughs> Yours starts with what? In 1 Peter one. Oh. Who's got a New American Standard Bible? <laughs> I thought that was... This is... Okay. Okay. Gotcha. The uh, 19 and chapter 5, verse 1 in the NASB say, therefore. So you've got back-to-back therefores. Um, but it's always important to check out those therefores and to think about those... You know, the, the funny thing we always say, what's the therefore, therefore, yada, yada, yada. But we also uh, just want to think about it too. Like, okay, he's connecting thoughts. When someone uses the word so, or in light of that, or therefore, thoughts are being connected. There's a flow of thought. And what is the context of that last part of chapter 4 that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks? What's Peter been calling these Christians to do in light of their trials? Okay, to suffer well, to imitate Christ in their suffering and trust their souls to God. That was the last verse we looked at, verse 19 of chapter 4. Yep, to press on. Okay, so the thoughts being connected from there, therefore, or so, or in light of that, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. He has a little side part there, but verse 2, he exhorts the elders to shepherd the flock of God among you, and to exercise oversight, and he goes on to give descriptions of that. So, in light of the charge to entrust your souls to a faithful Creator in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trials, as judgment begins with the house of God, we looked at that verse last week too, verse 17 of chapter 4. In light of that, the elders among the people are to lead them well or to shepherd them well. As the people of God are sorted out through fiery trials, as they're tested, okay? the, as judgment begins with them, the leaders in the church are to lead through those difficult times well, and he gives descriptions of that. Uh, before we get too far into that, though, I mentioned this passage last night, Ezekiel 9, and tonight I want us to look at it, but I want us to look at some other passages in Ezekiel also, so uh, save your spot here. We're going to be flipping around in Ezekiel a little bit. So, I want to connect some thoughts from the Old Testament to uh, 1 Peter 5 tonight. So, go to Ezekiel 6, if you would, with me. About the middle of your Bible, Ezekiel 6. And we'll look at the first few verses there of that chapter. There are similar themes that are happening in these two scenarios. What Ezekiel is seeing and being told by God, and what Peter is describing to the church. uh, Talked about last week how the idea of judgment begins with the house of God is something that God has done through the ages with His people. Judgment beginning with His people, and even, in particular, the leaders of His people. So we'll see that in these different passages, but let's start in Ezekiel 6 and look at the first eight verses. Someone want to read that for us? Ezekiel 6, 1 to 8. Okay. All right. So, Ezekiel here is getting a word from the Lord about God's judgment coming upon His people. And so, uh, not the most... Encouraging passage to read. It's like, wow, that's a lot of extreme language. Uh, God talking about slaying people and dropping those dead bodies in front of their idols. That's some pretty swift judgment <laughs> that is happening in Israel. And what we're seeing in this first part of Ezekiel's book is over and over again, he's getting a word from the Lord or a vision from the Lord that is describing the sin of Israel describing God's coming judgment on their sin, mainly idolatry, forsaking, I mean, forsaking Yahweh, their God, who delivered them out of Egypt, and then giving a hope at the end. You even saw that in our passage. You see that in verse 8. However, I will leave a remnant. That's a very hopeful uh, little light in the midst of a really bleak passage. And so, we see this described here in chapter 6, and look over to chapter 7 toward the end, chapter 7, verse 20, we'll see some of the same stuff. Uh, God describing the sins of Israel and talking about what's going to happen, how He's going to respond. So, I'll read, starting in chapter 7, verse 20, God says, "...they transformed the beauty of His ornaments into pride, and they made the images of their abominations and their detestable things with it. Therefore, I will make it an abhorrent thing to them. I will give it into the hands of the foreigners as plunder and to the wicked of the earth as spoil, and they will profane it. I will also turn my face from them and they will be or they will profane my secret place, then robbers will enter and profane it. So this is talking about the temple. It's talking about these good gifts that God has given his people Israel. God's given them, it says, ornaments in verse 20 in the New American Standard. Anybody else have a word other than ornaments? They transform the beauty of his ornaments into pride? Jewelry? Yeah, That's the idea. Um, Things that you put on to wear. These gifts that God had given Israel, they took them and they made them detestable things. Uh, You can think of the golden calf as an example of that. That's not the immediate thing that Ezekiel has in mind. But what did they make the golden calf out of? You remember? That they got from Yeah. And those if we keep tracing it all the way back, who provided those things? Even back even farther. <laughs> God, right, okay. Yeah, right. And so so God, of course, provides for them, but it was through Egypt and his deliverance out of Egypt where they were able to take a plunder with them out of Egypt. And then they take these ornaments, this jewelry that God gives them, and they make detestable things. And uh, here God is saying He's going to be judging them. He says in verse 22, a very scary thing. I will also turn my face from them, God's judgment. And they will go on to profane my secret place, His temple. Wow. Chapter 8, or chapter 9 rather, just over a page or two. Chapter 9, starting at verse 3 someone want to read um, 3 through 11 Ezekiel 9 starting at verse 3 who wants to read as a prophet in Israel calling out their sin <laughs> of course Andy signs up for that yeah okay go ahead Andy Okay, so again, another passage it's pretty bleak. God is judging the sin in Israel. Did you catch who they started with? Who'd they start with? Yeah, <clears throat> they did. At the end of verse 6, they started with the elders who were before the temple. Okay, why did they start with the quote-unquote old people? <laughs> yeah, they're the leaders. And they're before the temple, so they're doing the temple service most likely. They're out front as leaders in Israel. And if they had an X on their forehead, if they had a mark on their forehead, they wouldn't be slain. But apparently these particular elders who were falling by the sword were engaging in the sinful activity, were modeling it, were encouraging it, and God's judgment was coming upon them in this vision. Thoughts on what we've read in Ezekiel here. Not too cheery. Hmm. God hates sin. There you go. Yep, I mean, this it's difficult. When you look at verse 6, isn't it difficult to take in? Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? But God is holy. And here He's giving a vision to Ezekiel and through Ezekiel to the people of Israel. How much He hates sin. This is how holy God is. And if someone did not have, or if someone had the mark on their forehead, that person was not to be touched. Okay, um, So I'm bringing this up particularly chapter nine, because um, what we have in First Peter, if we look back to last week, where it says in 1 Peter 4:17, "For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God." Um, there's this idea of God' starting not only uh, with his people in judgment, but starting at his temple in judgment. Uh, this In Ezekiel 9, they were starting with the elders who were at the temple. And now, of course, we know that uh, the church, we are God's temple. Here we are together, gathered together as living stones. Peter went over that in chapter 2. And so he says, judgment begins with us, the household of God. And then he goes right on from there to say, okay, elders, this is how you are to think, this is how you are to behave, this is how you are to conduct yourselves in the service of the household of God. So, I, I do think there's still judgment theme uh, here. You know, Peter does say, therefore. He's continuing the idea. And in light of God's judgment beginning with the household of God, through the suffering, through the trials, in particular, the leaders in the church need to be aware of how they are to conduct themselves. Is that making sense? Is that connection pretty clear? Okay. All right. Um, so, let's talk about elders, because Peter uses the word elders, and this is an interesting thing to think about, because in Ezekiel 9, the passage we were just looking at, he used the word elders. They were to start with the elders. Who are the elders of Israel? Stacy, you gave a great definition, a great two-word definition. The old old people, yeah, <laughs> old people, but yeah, particularly the, the, the old men. Um, elders in Israel among Jewish people, just referred to older men who led the groups of people, and they're also in the early church, the older men. That's what the word means. Uh, It's the the way that we use the word today when we say your, your elders, respect your elders. It means your older people. That's literally what the word means. And it seems like at the time that Peter was writing this, that's probably the main thing that he had in view, because the Qualifications for elders, the description of elders, when you think of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where it talks about overseers, those letters probably hadn't been written yet by the time Peter wrote this, or at the time Peter wrote this, and they certainly hadn't been circulated quite yet. And so, the way that we understand from our completed New Testament that we have before us today, the way that we understand the structure of the church probably isn't exactly what Peter had in mind when he was talking about elders here. It's probably part of what Peter had in mind, but not exactly what he had in mind. He's talking likely about older men who in the early church were leading, kind of in the same way they did in Israel. Um, in fact, the word church doesn't even come up in the book of First Peter. The word church isn't in there. Uh, there's likely, especially because we're dealing with scattered people from persecution, you've got communities in Asia Minor, you've got these Christian communities that have developed where people are living in the same geographic area who claim the name of Christ, who are living life together, and among them there are older men who are de facto leaders, particularly because a lot of them had a Jewish background, undoubtedly, and that's the way that it was in Israel. In fact, you can see this in the book of Acts, and I think it's important that we grasp this just to understand what they were dealing with. Turn with me to Acts 6 real quick. We're going to look at three passages in Acts, just briefly, each one of them. Acts chapter 6 Verse 12. Someone want to read that one verse, Acts 6, 12? Okay. All right. So here we've got Stephen in the early church, a believer. He stirred up, uh, well, other people stirred up. The uh, the people, particularly, it says the elders and the scribes, in reaction to Stephen, they're stirring up the people. They're really trying to stir up the elders and the scribes. So we see at this time in the early church, in the the Jewish community, they still had people called elders, just like in the book of Ezekiel. These aren't elders of the church. Remember, this is the nation of Israel. These are older Jewish men who are an example to the other Jews and leaders. Now turn with me to chapter 11, just a few pages over, Acts chapter 11. We'll see the word elders come up again in verse 30. Acts chapter 11, verse 30. I'll start in verse 29. It says, And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. This is the first time that the word elders comes up in the New Testament in relation to the church. It's the first time we see it. So here we have a transition from elders in Judaism to now elders who are associated with a Christian church, a local church. We have no other detail in there about these elders. It just says that they're there, which is kind of interesting. And then chapter 14, just again a page or two over, Acts 14, verse 23, this is Paul and Barnabas going through Galatia, it says, "...when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed." And so here, this is the the second time you see in the book of Acts, elders in a local church and you've got a little bit more detail here because they're being appointed, and the fact that they're being appointed means there was some sort of qualification, there was some sort of selection process that was happening. We don't have a detailed list of that, but we have okay, they're planting churches. In each church, we need a plurality of elders. That's what you have happening in uh, Galatia there. So, what at what point uh, of this process <laughs> were the churches that Peter was writing to? Well, they weren't Jews. But they're probably in that middle process, that chapter 11 usage of the word elders where we don't know a lot about what was going on, but there were older men there who were leading in some capacity and were to be examples to the flock. But we don't have, uh, most likely, we don't have the type of eldership that we have in our churches today in light of the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and all of that. Okay, does that make sense as far as uh, what was happening there in those communities? A lot we don't know, so there's a measure of speculation here. But Jim? hmm Yeah, I believe so. Yep, and what's interesting, in one of the passages, I think it's the De- one of the Deuteronomy passages where it talks about that very thing, bring the men... Uh, to the gates so that they will hear from God and the men will tell them. And it's this idea of God appointing leaders among His people and their authority comes from God and their decisions, at least in Israel in that passage, were binding as if from God too. So, yep, definitely an authority structure that was set up there. Okay, okay. Well, in the New Testament, we do see the word elder in a few places. We also see the word overseer. Some Bibles might say bishop, might say pastor in some cases. All those words are interchangeable in the New Testament. Pastor, bishop, overseer, elder, they're all interchangeable. Um, And so that's the idea of 1 Peter 5 of what he's talking about, but likely not as developed as we have today. And Peter, as he writes to these elders, he gives a little bit of biographical information. This is the first time that Peter has spoken of himself since the very beginning of the letter. (laughs) And he says, I exhort the elders among you, this is 1 Peter five one. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. So he gives some... Some biographical points. One is that he's a fellow elder. What did Peter mean by saying he's a fellow elder? What do you think? Because he obviously wasn't there with them, serving with them in the capacity they were serving in, but what could he, what could he mean there? Yes, spiritual leader, someone with authority from God. He was an apostle, of course. Peter was an apostle. And elders got their authority from apostles, got their position from apostles. That's what we looked at in Acts 14. When the apostles would plant churches, they would appoint elders in the churches. And uh, that was the norm of how those elders got into that office. The elders received their position in many ways from the apostles. And as a spiritual leader... uh, Peter certainly functioned as an elder in local churches. The apostles spent considerable amount of time in local churches, and when they were there, they functioned even as elders, as teachers, as pastors, as shepherds, even though their roles, of course, were more than that. And he gives two more points, autobiographical points. He says he's a witness of Christ's sufferings. And that's an interesting point to put in there. He could have said... I'm a witness of His resurrection, because you've heard on Resurrection Sunday a bunch of different times, that passage where John and Peter are racing. You know, I mean, Peter was there. He was involved in seeing the risen Christ. But he didn't pick the resurrection. He picked the sufferings of Christ. And, of course, that's somewhat expected because of the theme of the letter. He's talking about suffering so much. And here he relates those sufferings back to Christ again, like he did in chapter 2. And it's important that he points out that he saw these things firsthand because that's, that's a powerful part of his testimony. And that's a powerful uh, credibility giver. When you're someone instructing uh, as an apostle, instructing an in early church, I mean, he's saying, I was with Jesus. I was there. And uh, he was there in great weakness too. When Christ was suffering, Peter was Lying three times before the rooster crowed, and so he, but he was there, and so he's pointing that out, and then thirdly, pointing out that he's also a fellow partaker of the coming glory. So in one sense, he's different than them in that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ, but he's a fellow elder, and he's also one who's going to share in the glory that is to be revealed, it says. He's on the same level as them in glory. A sharer in glory. Uh, So, three points that Peter marks there for them. He's not instructing them as just a mere authority, but he's a brother in the Lord who's experienced, who witnessed the sufferings of Christ himself. And then he gets into his exhortation. Okay? So, starting in verse 2, he gives a detailed commission to the elders of the church. And he says, shepherd the flock, the verb shepherd. We may not use it as a verb too often, but yours might say tend to, tend to the flock. And this is probably a a really sweet memory that Peter has when he was with Christ after the resurrection. Do you remember that when Jesus and Peter were sitting there together and Jesus asked him three questions? What were the three questions? Yeah, there you go. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And each time, what did Peter say? Yes. And what did Jesus say in response? Right. Two times he said, "Feed my sheep." And in the middle, do you remember what that one was? It's the verb is different. Feed, feed. Shepherd. That's it. The word he uses here, tend, tend to my lambs or shepherd my lambs. That's the one that's in the middle. Jesus himself had instructed Peter after the resurrection, this is what you are to do. And so, of course, in that sense, too, that's a function of an elder or an overseer. Peter is a fellow elder. That's what he's been doing. That's what he was commissioned to do. And he says, this is how you are to do it. First is voluntarily, voluntarily. I like passages like this that are just really clear. Hey, do this, don't do that. <laughs> I, like, I like the simplicity of that, where it's like, okay, this is how you're to do it. Avoid doing it this way. Uh, that is a way my brain works. I like that. Voluntarily is how they are to do it. Um, it says that in the middle of verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily. That means freely or willingly, uh, with full knowledge and intention. So as you go into this task, as you're shepherding the flock of God, do so knowing what you're doing, not in that you're 100% skilled or something like that, but be aware that this is a task that God has called you to do and you are willing to do it. Do it willingly, voluntarily, not under compulsion. So, that's the, uh, the don't. So, don't do it under compulsion. That's a word we don't use very often, compulsion. It's a good word. It's something that's to be done as a pleasure. It's something that's to be done as a joy. It's to be done recognizing it's a difficult task, but You're truly embracing that difficult task. You're not begrudgingly doing it, but you're doing it voluntarily. One guy has said that elders are to serve not like drafted soldiers, but as volunteers. Because you get drafted, well, no other choice. Under compulsion, right? Choice has been removed. But they're not to serve that way. They're to serve as volunteers, and don't you know there's a difference in effectiveness when someone's doing something willingly, joyfully, voluntarily, as opposed to being forced? <laughs> we've all experienced that. We've all lived it, and we've, had, we've been around it. Um, this is just a better way to do it. Elders are not to serve as though, you know, they're a, a young man who's in bed, warm sheets, and mom's calling. Get up and do your chores. Oh, you know. Or maybe you're a grown person and your alarm's going off for work. <laughs> oh, I don't. I don't want to get up. That's under compulsion, right? That's not the way that elders are to serve. Do you know anything about not wanting to get out of bed, Walker? <laughs> well, it doesn't get any better as you get older. No. <laughs> so, it, it can be tough some mornings, especially when it gets colder and your furnace isn't quite up and running yet, so it's cold in the house when you wake up in the morning. and Those sheets are so warm. You put your foot out, ooh, and you put your foot back in. Yeah, <laughs> And then you force yourself to go. That's not the way elders are supposed to leave. <laughs> elders are to do so voluntarily, willingly, joyfully, not under compulsion. Under compulsion, like, this is my only option, so I'm just going to suffer through it. I'm just going to just go through it. And we have an example of compulsion. I thought this was a cool example. It's just back a few pages to the book of Philemon. This is your uh, annual reminder of where Philemon is in your Bible. And it's just Go back just a few pages. <clears throat> Before the book of Hebrews, you'll find that little book of Philemon. And would someone read verses 10 through 14, just the one chapter there, Philemon verses 10 to 14. Melissa, go ahead. All right, so who was Philemon? Philemon? Yeah. Philemon was a slave master and uh, Onesimus was the slave. Onesimus had run away and Paul loves Onesimus. Paul also loves Philemon. Paul's trying to work things out here. He's uh, being a peacemaker. And he's saying that Onesimus is very useful for him and he wants to keep him. But he wants Philemon's loan of his slave to not be under compulsion, but Voluntary. So he doesn't want to keep him and say, Thanks, Philemon, I'm just hanging on to him, without Philemon being able to get a word in. <laughs> he wants Philemon to, of his own accord, say, You know what? Onesimus can be with you. He's useful to you. You guys connected. We've got an issue. This is great. That's what Paul wants to happen for Philemon to voluntarily, willingly, joyfully allow Onesimus to serve with him. And so <clears throat> this idea of being under compulsion is the idea that you have no other choice. And Peter's saying, you elders of the church, don't walk around acting like you have no other choice and this is just your lot in life. Don't see it as distressing or an overwhelming burden. Does anybody have a an NIV perchance? I think NIV uses that language. You do? Are you in 1 Peter 5? Oh, you want to turn back to 1 Peter 5? I think it said something like overwhelming burden. I kind of like the way that that was worded. And that's not the way that Pastors and leaders are to act. Verse 2. Yeah. Oh. There you go. Not because you must. That's the way they worded it. I like that. Not because you must, but voluntarily. Okay? So that's the first contrast of do and don't. Thoughts or questions on voluntarily versus under compulsion? Okay. He also says to serve with eagerness. I'll just read verse 2 again from NASB. Shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Okay, good word, with eagerness. And what is set against eagerness there in that verse? Yeah, well, we'll say, uh, I'll say selfish gain. Okay, so to do so with eagerness as opposed to selfish gain. Eagerness means to be ready to venture forward, ready to do it, ready to move forward. Think of um, what Jesus said when he was praying in the garden, and he came back, and the disciples were sleeping. What did he say to them? What's that great phrase that we often repeat? Same word. The spirit is eager, but the flesh is weak. Same idea. So to do so willingly, not because you stand to gain something from it, financially or whatever it may be, uh, in control, power, you know, prominence, whatever it is, not for selfish gain, but because you are truly willing, you're eager to serve. Leaders in the church are to lead with a holy fervor, a holy passion, not for sordid gain. NASB says sordid. Anybody have a King James version? What does it say instead of sordid gain? At the end, we Filthy lucre. I like that one. Yeah, that's that's good. I just wrote King James. I didn't write what it said. I forgot. It said filthy lucre. I like that. So that's, there are a lot of, a lot of things you can think of with sordid gain um, or filthy lucre. It could be all sorts of stuff. A dishonest gain. Good. Yeah. So cheating people even. Um, having an appearance of being holy, eager, willing, and yet the whole time you're like a wolf in sheep's clothing. You're... You're fleecing the people. Selling indulgences, that's right. Yeah, mm mm-hmm, absolutely. And then uh, it also says in the middle of all that, I kind of, I think I wrote these out of order in my notes. In verse 2, it says, "...the elders are to shepherd according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, verse 3, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving..." to be examples to the flock. Okay, so do is uh, God's will, right? Lead according to God's will. And they're to not lord it over. Or you could say uh, control people. So do, lead according to God's will, don't lord it over. They are to submit to God's instruction for leading and serving in the church, the way that Christians are to live. They're to be a model, to be an example, but not to lord it over. That means to uh, overpower or to dictate or to be a tyrant or to become a, a mini pope in the church uh, where, you know, you are the mediator for the people, taking trying to take the place of Christ in their lives, to be domineering, to be the Holy Spirit in their lives, to tell them what their convictions should be, to tell them what they should do, how they should live, where they, where they should live. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. They are not to lord over the people with their authority. And of course, there's a temptation to do that. Anytime any human being gets any measure of authority, there's a temptation to abuse it, Right? Anytime you just get the tiniest little bit of any kind of authority, it's like, oh, man, your flesh kicks in. It's like, how can I just really mess this up and turn a beautiful thing into a terrible thing? Because we're always tempted to be prideful and to think, well, our way's best. And hey, since I have this little bit of authority, let's just do my way because my way's best. Or you have a temptation to think, well, if I don't control them, then things are just going to get out of control. I'm in charge, so that way nothing gets out of control. I'm just going to control everybody. That's lording it over people. Don't control people, Peter says. But lead by God's will. They're to be examples, to be out front, serving and sacrificing in the way that they lead. And this doing the will of God theme draws on several passages of 1 Peter. Turn back to chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, we looked at this last week. Starting in verse 21, the heading in the NASB says, Christ is our example. So Christ did this in the way that He led. 1 Peter 2.21, it says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He was living by the will of God. He was pursuing the will of God. He was seeking to please God, to honor God, to magnify God in his earthly life. That's what Jesus was doing, and that's our example, it says here. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. Look at this Last week, Peter instructed them: Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evil doer, or a troublesome meddler. So, generally speaking, all all of God's people, this is the commission in suffering, is to do pursue the will of God, do the will of God, and how He's revealed that to us. Walk by faith, don't walk by the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 19, same chapter, the last verse of chapter 4, those who suffer according to the will of God, there's the theme of God's will, shall entrust their souls, there's the theme of doing God's will, to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. As you suffer according to the will of God, you are to pursue the will of God in your life and to live out what He has called you to do as a Christian, and in particular, the elders of the flock, the shepherds, the pastors, the overseers are to lead by example in the midst of trial and suffering and persecution. And what's interesting about these three things that Peter brings up, the, uh, the things not to do, the compulsion, the selfish gain, and the uh, controlling of people, there is a compulsion that comes with being a leader in the church in that uh, God has called that man to that office. God has given him that desire to that office. Uh, Kind of the same idea in 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul says, the love of Christ controls us or compels us. That same idea, there's a compulsion there, but it's not to be twisted into a, a fallen compulsion. It's to be a holy compulsion. There's a gain in pastoral ministry in the sense that, well, they do provide financially. I'm provided for financially here as a pastor in the church, okay? Um, There is a measure of respect or whatever that comes with the office, prominence. You could use those different words. But it's not to be selfish, not to be used dishonestly or or whatever different words are used there. And the same with this, there is a, a measure of authority that comes, I mean, we read in our passage tonight, young men, submit to your elders. Be subject to your elders. But it's not to be this kind of authority, selfish, controlling, fallen, sinful authority, but it's to be that beautiful, God-given authority that's exercised rightly. And so I just found that to be interesting that all three of those things do exist, but the fallen versions of them are not to exist, just the holy, God-given versions of them. Thoughts on that? are questions <clears throat> not qualified for <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our, twisted your arm yeah yeah that's right I know we just went through a a big split and there are 15 people here, but we still need seven (laughs) elders. Yeah, um, you see it a lot in in small churches too, where it's just like, well, who's going to step up? And then finally some guy, okay, well, here I go. Uh, I was talking to a a guy one time, uh, LDS guy. It was when I first moved out here, first job I had, Uh, the only job that I had outside of our church. And I was training with him that day, and I found out he was a bishop. And I said, I asked about that process because that was all new to me. And I said, something like, does that mean like you're really interested in leading or you're really interested in the church or whatever? And he said, ah, it's more like I'm the idiot who said yes. (laughs) Oh, that's an honest answer. Okay. I mean, you can work with honesty, you know. Okay. Okay. That sounds like under compulsion, right? That doesn't sound like voluntarily. Andy. Depending on what you mean by that, yeah. Bishops. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there are some quote-unquote Christian denominations that are that way too. Uh, There are some denominations that are really controlling and move people around by essentially force. This is where you're going to serve. That's what you're going to do. Wow, well, that doesn't sound like spirit-led. That doesn't sound like it's based on the person's willingness. It's just what people are going to do, and that's not the way that it should be. For sure, Jim. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. This is just a stepping stone for me. I'm I'm headed for uh, Osteen's. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be on staff. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, there, yeah, there was a, I might get too far off track here. There was a guy I saw, man, he he died a few years ago. He lived in Payson, and he he had some story of going from uh, an evangelical pastor to being LDS. And I had the opportunity to meet him when we moved out, because I think he died in 2015 or 2016. I just didn't know of him then. I wish I could have met with him and talked to him about the gospel. But I ended up looking up his background, because I thought, how do you go from being a pastor, a a true gospel-believing pastor, to LDS? And I looked at his church history, and that's what it was. Two or three years in this church, two or three years in that church. And we're talking, like, across denominations. Like, it wasn't even, like, all Baptist or Methodist or whatever. It was, like, all over the map, different states even, and and that, and that, you know, could fall under selfish gain, sordid gain, dishonest gain. could fall under all kinds of stuff, and that's just not the way it should be. And for those faithful leaders in the church, there's the hope of verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, Earthly ones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The eternal crowns are all unfading. There are different crowns spoken of in in the New Testament. But yeah, making a a point to saying this is an eternal reward, unfading crown of glory. And uh, Jesus here is called the chief shepherd. He's the shepherd of all of God's people. He's not just the shepherd of the elders, he's the true shepherd of all of God's people. The elders of churches are just the under-shepherds for the chief shepherds. And I think, uh, even more importantly, a thought to have in your head is that he is the owner of the flock. And this is something that I've always been sensitive to is how... And I I know that not everyone's like this, and that's totally okay. Uh, But I've always been sensitive to possessive pronouns because my dad was really sensitive to possessive pronouns. Uh, When people would say, my people... Um my dad dealt with that once. After he became a Christian, he went on a mission trip with me. And uh it was I think to Nashville after a flood. Uh we went to help rebuild a house. And uh the guy who was leading our group owned his owns his own little construction business and referred to the volunteer group over the phone when he's talking to somebody else. He I'll, I'll get my people to be there tomorrow at whatever time. And my dad's really sensitive to that kind of stuff, so I guess I inherited that from my dad. Um so I'm always really sensitive when I talk about our church. I just don't, I don't like to say my people in any way. I, I, I like to emphasize that you are God's people. I don't own you. I, uh, I, there's a stewardship there, but not an ownership. Okay? Uh, Jesus is your chief shepherd. <laughs> yeah, no, no human being owns you. But your creator owns you. Jesus is your chief shepherd. And, uh, and to those under-shepherds in that stewardship, at the end, they will receive the unfading crown of glory. So many pastors, you think 2,000 years, so many elders of local churches who are just totally unknown, who have just had a quiet existence, being faithful, plodding along, doing what God has called them to do, enduring all kinds of stuff, and Jesus knows, He sees, and in the end, He'll make all things right. And there are so many people who have the spotlight who are leading in some of these ways that are just wrong. And in the world's eyes, well, they're going to get the big crown, but Jesus knows, and He's going to sort it all out in the end. And there are faithful guys who are really well-known, and there are unfaithful guys who are not well-known. I mean, it's not like a, a perfect line that's right down the middle but I think you get what I'm saying. Uh, For those who are in the church being faithful men, there awaits for them an unfading crown of glory from Jesus Himself. And he goes on there in verse 5. You see that word likewise? At least in the New American Standard, it says likewise. You younger men, likewise. He's carrying on the thought. So he's he's not saying like the elders. He's saying in the same sense or on the same subject. You younger men... Be subject to these elders, your elders, he says. And so the response of the younger men is to submit. Um, Younger men, of course, being in contrast to the older men who are leading. This word younger men means younger men by age. Why do you think he's singling them out? Very good. Yeah, I think that is, there are two major reasons. I think that's one of them. They are the next leaders or the future leaders of the church. And uh, man, I saw a quote. I, apparently, I didn't write them down, write it down word for word. But it's something about the idea of the best way to propagate good leadership in the church, to keep that going, is for the younger men to sit under godly leaders. When you look at the different wayward movements that have occurred whether we recognize them as wayward movements or not, so whether it's a cult or whether it's a certain megachurch that popped up and died or whatever it is, you've got a bunch of people who just appointed themselves. Usually young men who just go and say, yeah, I'm in charge. I'm going to start a new thing and I'll be in charge. And I'm going to do what I want to do. That never works. (laughs) I mean, for a period of time, it'll be like, wow, that's an amazing thing that's going on. But eventually it will fall apart they'll be found out. And uh, that's just not the way God has designed it. But the younger men are to submit to older men. I found that to be one of the biggest issues um, in the American church. I'm thankful that, you know, I had three and a half years here as an associate pastor with Lee. I don't agree with Lee on everything, but I'm very thankful I had those three and a half years to submit to him in a lot of ways in that sense, knowing that I was going to be the next staff pastor. Before that, we were in Kansas City. Um, I'm very thankful that I had a pastor there who allowed me to, I don't know, be in on a lot of things, to hear a lot of things, be trained in ministry that way. I didn't agree with him on everything, but I'm still so thankful I got to submit to him. <laughs> and, and that's the idea is that regardless of if you agree on everything, you submit, be subject to, unless he crosses the line to heresy or sin. You still submit. And I think the other reason it's a lot like that. So they're the next leaders, but also who are the most likely to throw a fit in the church and to cause a big scene and to make a new movement and a split out of a church? The younger men. (laughs) They're the ones who are the most likely to huff and puff and to cause a movement. It's not always the younger men, but they're the ones with the energy and the strength, right? And so, um, in light of that reality, and in light of the fact that they're the next leaders, they're to submit. Um, being subject to local church leadership, um, to follow their guidance in the church, we see that in a couple places in the New Testament. If you just turn back uh, two books to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, it's probably just a couple pages, you'll see it there. Um, I'm going to read to you before that from 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5:12 and 13 says, "Appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another." And then Hebrews 1317 someone want to read that one. Okay So being subject to the elders is something that the whole church is called to do, uh, the leaders in the church to follow their guidance, okay in love and with peace. And then in 1 Peter 5, just to wrap up with this thought tonight, um, this is the calling for the whole church because this is really, as we talk about a calling to submit, this is a calling for humility. You can't submit if you're not humble. Uh, That's the only way that submission is possible, is through humility, and we see that in verse 5, the second half of it, when he says, "...and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another." For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we're going to continue on this thought next week, starting in verse 6. He leads right into the next section off this verse. But we are to pursue humility as a whole church. And that's critical in times of distress, times of confusion, times of persecution, like this church was going through. They were to be humble toward one another, not backbiting, gossiping, fighting. That's the last thing you need, especially in those times. And ultimately, they can look to Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, for their example of humility. Because although he was equal with God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, making himself in the form of a bondservant. Walking among us, counting other people's needs as more important than his own. So it's possible for us to do this, uh, but we only do it through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the gift of one another to counsel each other and to keep each other accountable. Okay, any final thoughts or questions on 1 Peter 5 1 to 5? I didn't fall asleep. I had a slice of carrot cake about as big as my head tonight, so, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I'm glad I'm wearing loose-fitting clothes tonight, because I I just ate a lot of food today. I was a glutton, I'm confessing, so, uh, I'll sleep well. (laughs) All right, well, let's pray. Lord, again, we thank You so much for the gift of Your church the gift of Your Word, the gift of uh, life that we have to experience You, to know You, to walk with You in the short time that we have here. God, please give us uh, just strength for today, as the song says, and bright hope for tomorrow, that we would uh, entrust our souls to You constantly, walking by faith, walking by the Spirit, seeking to magnify you in all that we do. Please keep us safe tonight and bring us back together for a celebration of your day on Sunday, celebrating the risen Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.